How can we make the world better? By making ourselves better. The Dr. Joe Show explores how you can make positive personal change by using his groundbreaking and highly effective I Am approach to understand who we are and why we do what we do. Your small changes can have big effects. Join us now for the Dr. Joe Show with Mark Stiles of Stiles Law, Thomas McCoy, and your host, Dr. Joe Schrand. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Dr. Joe Show. Very nice, Tom. Mark Stiles, who is not here tonight, uh, knows that he has to be shaking in his boots with an introduction like that. Yeah, got to be on call. You got to be on call. Yep. Mark uh, Stiles, at, at the very last minute, understandably, because his kids are applying for college, can't be here tonight. But we got Tom here. There's been a lot going on this year. Some people don't believe everything that they hear. And with that in mind, Tom, could you introduce our two guests for tonight? That's right, Dr. Joe. We are welcoming back Glenn Gare of psych Psychology Professor at the State University of New York at New Peltz. And... How are we doing, guys? Hello, hello. Hi, Glenn. Hi. Welcome back. Thank you. And we are also welcoming a new guest. He served as Chief of Staff in the U.S. Senate and House of Representatives during a 20-year career as a congressional staff member. He's worked as a management consultant at PwC and co-founded a nonprofit organization for disadvantaged youth. And he now empowers and teaches technical professionals to boil down their work into jargon-free, accurate, and engaging narratives that advance their priorities with key decision makers in government and the private sector. Welcome, Mark Baer. Hey. Yeah, welcome, Mark. Thank it you. It is so great to have you here. And, and you too, Glenn, welcome back. It was a crazy show last week, but we had fun. Let me, let me start with you, Mark. T tonight, you know, we're going to be talking sort of as an extension of what we started to do last week. Last week was April Fool's for the Dr. Joe Show, and we were talking about really that that part of us as human beings that can sort of not only be duped, but in some times sort of want to be. And you and I had the chance to chat a little earlier this week, and you brought up the word persuasion. I wonder whether you could just tell us a bit more about your field and where you're at with all of this. Sure. Well, thanks for that, Joe. Um, so I decided after I left Capitol Hill, you know, as, as Tom was talking about, uh, to, to work with primarily scientists, engineers, people who are most comfortable in technical areas, right? Data, you know, evidence, things like that. Facts. I know it, it sounds quaint these days, right? <laughs> Because <laughs> people, as you were saying, are, you know, will believe a lot of different things. Um, but, you know, when I was uh, both on working in the Congress and um, also in my grad school studies, uh, I became really fascinated by really what moves people to make decisions. You know, how do you, how do you get your message across to somebody so that they can you know, really hear it, understand it? Maybe it'll change their attitude about something. You know, the, what we're experiencing right now with COVID is, you know, really like a historic example of the importance of this. You know, how do you persuade people to wear a mask? How do you, you know, convince them that they really should uh, social distance or that they, you know, shouldn't, you know, go to spring break with, with like wall to wall other, you know, college kids like I did when I was a sophomore. Um, but that was before COVID. So in any case, the, the persuasion is really, what does it take to, to reach people? 
in a way that can uh, influence their behavior and and I would say you know uh, get them to think more you know differently um, and maybe to change and change their behavior. But the key here is that it all has to be accurate and true information that you're using, that you're drawing upon to do this. It has to be authentic because uh, the sort of evil twin of persuasion is manipulation, um, which is not what we're talking about. And that's where you'll basically call, <clears throat> pull out anything, whether it's true or not, to get someone to do something that's often in his or her, uh, not in their self-interest. Um, that is the realm of manipulation. And we're not talking about that tonight. And, and yet, maybe we are, and we'll get to that in a way, because I think for some people, persuasion is, you know, this is the truth. This is what we want you to believe this is how it will help you. Um, but what if when people aren't telling the truth uh, and people believe it anyway? Glenn, Glenn, I wonder whether you want to comment on some of the neuroscience with this. What what about persuasion? What what is it about our human brains that that are so interested and basically receptive to that whole approach? Sure. Well. You know, I think that one of the things that we find in the behavioral sciences is that people often have a hard time separating what we might call physical reality from social reality. <clears throat> um, and so this, a lot of this goes back to some really classic research by Solomon Ash, famous, um, famous, uh, historically significant figure in the field. And he's famous for this research where it was what they called conformity research. So you'd go into a room and there was 10 people sitting around a table. Everyone else was kind of in on it. It was almost like a practical joke, really. And you were the last participant. Everyone else was what they called a confederate of the experimenter. And they had three lines and then one line separate that was the size exactly of one of those three lines. And they would ask everyone, which line is the same? Which of these three is the same as that comparator line? And everyone before you goes first, and they all give what is obviously the incorrect answer. And the percentage of people who conformed, even though they really said later, I didn't think it was right, was substantially higher than, you know, than maybe anyone would have expected. And, you know, part of what, what's going on is that when there's a, a, a norm that is created by a group, created by others, you know, it kind of takes on its own reality. And sometimes it's hard for us to tease apart whether some social norm or social rule, which is really just flexible and just created by people, how different or similar that is to something like the sky is blue or the, you know, the sun is a star or whatever, you know, real physical facts are. And, and so I think that you know, there's a, a lot of ways in which we just have a very hard time separating out socially constructed reality versus the actual physical world. Mark, you're, you're, you're nodding your head, even though many of our radio audiences can't see that. <laughs> what do you think about that? Has this been your experience as well? Yeah, well, I think what, what you're also really getting at there in such a, a great example is the emotional aspect of what drives people. Um, you know, it's not actually just data and facts and evidence that make people, you know, decide to do one thing or another. You know, anyone who's ever bought a new car, 
you know is is uh, you know is is familiar with this or or been in a situation where everyone is you know doing something and then maybe they're going to conform or not as that example pointed out but the pull of emotion is so strong and i think sometimes people particularly those who are used to dealing in data and evidence as being not just primary but almost like the only thing that's important leave out this aspect of this emotional uh, dimension to our decision making so you know you, maybe that person in the room wants to feel liked wants to fit in these are all feelings you know those are sentiments um they're not you know it's it's not based on data the data shows x inches right and which one has as close to x as as possible that's the data aspect of it but i think that what we've really seen um you know in kind of like in high definition 4k these last few years is the importance of emotion and the power of it to move people when the facts just don't line up emotion and facts yeah this remarkable merger as as human beings of wanting to be part of a group even when sometimes you know it just can't be real so i, I i'm wondering Mark, I want to come back to you for a moment. Um in terms of of the work that you've been doing with scientists because scientists are dealing with facts. I mean, this is data, right? And yet somehow the way they communicate it isn't sometimes persuasive. So, how do you help them with that? Yeah. Oh, it's a great question, Joe. And um you know, I I think it starts with understanding that data is necessary but not sufficient to persuade mm. Um, mm. And, and to think about it as a three part and again I didn't make this up this is from Aristotle you know 2000 plus years ago right and he wrote about things that sounds so contemporary you know you can you can you know go surfing the web and you can see this kind of these kind of dynamics that he discussed you know what play at advertisements and so forth when you're talking about any kind of marketing or persuasion but basically talk about three parts to an argument or to persuade one of course is data and facts we talked about that already the other is the credibility of the speaker who you know who's telling you this information um you know people put a lot of stock they figure <clears throat> that into their decision making where am i getting this information from as somebody that i trust um or not um and then you know the third aspect um is this emotional aspect um and and that you know that is where the artistry sort of comes in and one thing i'll just say about scientists and this is what i talk to scientists about all the time when when i'm have the chance to do to do talks and workshops and so forth is the word scientist actually is relatively new in the mm. sort of the timeline of etymology and sort of a word nerd I have to self self profess for years a latin for me at north high school um with mrs fairty who was fantastic as a teacher um so it was basically coined around the 18 mid 1800s 1820s about 1820s and it was a combination of the latin scientia we get the science that means knowledge for those who are interested but the the ist at the end that was you know built into this word is meant to refer to artist and so what i say to scientists is you have this capability built in this artistry if you will 
um, built into your your job, your you know your profession, your 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 professional outlook. It is it is knowledge, but it is also an artistry. And then the emotional aspect is really the artistry. It's kind of how am I going to figure out how to reach this person or this group, given all that I know about it. You know, um, all the different aspects of maybe cultural aspects. Um, you know, what they've heard in the past, you know, who should the messenger sort of be? Is it, am I, you know, am I the right person to talk to this group as far as my credibility with the group? Or maybe there's somebody from the, from the community, from the neighborhood itself who would be better. And, you know, spoiler alert, yeah, that's the better way to do it. Um, but it is an art, it is an art, but it also embedded in it is is this is this science and i guess the sort of last one of my favorite quotes uh that I've, I've heard recently is really that you know your data is a character in your story but it's not the entire narrative uh, it's uh, joe brown who has a great show on pbs um who came up with that but so see it as an element of your story but it really can't be the entire deal um, if you want to be effective. Glenn, you, you were sort of nodding your head as Mark was talking. What part resonated with you with that? Sure. I think, first off, word nerd, that's awesome, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> I love, I feel like I just like learned like a whole bunch of stuff right there. I appreciate oh. it. Um, I think that, you know, I teach statistics and research methods and oversee student research projects. Um, and I, I always, one of the things that I say that I think is very consistent with, with what you're saying, Mark, is mm -hmm. that the, the capacity to understand knowledge minus the capacity to effectively communicate that knowledge renders the knowledge essentially useless. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, when students are, are doing a research project, it's it's top to bottom, you know, it's coming up with the idea, it's how can we test it, how can we measure it, how can we collect the data, how can we analyze the data so that we have a good sense of what it is. But then it's just as important as every other part of it, how can I effectively communicate that to someone else? And that could be through written means, that could be through oral means, um, that could be through academic journals, that could be through academic books, it could be through popular articles. Um, and I feel like science, it's funny because I think that's such an interesting thing to, to, to learn that, that the original concept of scientists almost had that built in, you know, it was like, not only can I collect and analyze these data about X or Y phenomenon, but I can somehow present it like an artist in a certain way that people sort of connect with it and that it helps them learn something and understand things in a different kind of way. So I think that's. Um, what you're saying is very consistent with, with my experience in, in training young behavioral scientists. I would just say that your students are so fortunate to have you as an instructor doing that because it's unusual that I've, I've you know, come across that. There often is this downplaying of that second element. So your, uh, your students are lucky to have you, Glenn. It's true. Ah, thank you, Mark. Sure. And, uh, before scientists, the term was natural philosopher, wasn't it? Hmm. So... You had, you had to have that ethos pathos logos, the whole package. And right. it's very important, uh, Glenn, the scientific process you mentioned, it's very important you do it in that order, isn't it? Because otherwise you have conclusions seeking evidence. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, the data, 
the data need to be collected first, you know? So really when you're coming up with conclusions, when you're speaking about what the data are, if you sort of have your conclusion first, and, and to be honest, this probably happens more than we wish were the case. If you have your conclusions first and then you do all your, your research and you're doing everything in your power to get to that conclusion, that's really poor science. You know, you're not really letting the data tell the story. So it really does, just like you're saying, Tom, it has to be done in, in a certain order. You know, the scientific process is how it is for a lot of good reasons. And I think you've articulated a really important one right there. And Glenn, if I just could real quick point out something that I just sort of learned from, from you as you're talking is that the communication process to be effective is the exact opposite of what you just said. Because a lot of times when I'm working with scientists, they want to communicate the information about their discovery in a linear, logical way. And the problem is that nobody sticks around for the end of the movie. <laughs> so I say, lead, start at the finish line uh, and then give some brief context. But I need to hear the punchline of the joke first. And it's hard for people, particularly ones who are trained, you know, scientifically to do that. But if you communicate it in the way that you conduct the science, you, you're not going to be able to, to accomplish your goal if it is to, to do as you're describing, as you're teaching your students to do. Yeah. So right. the data tells the story, but really you tell the story first and then present the data. Is is that is that part of just the way our brain is designed is is we are much more interested in the story first glenn what do you think i mean is that who we are as storytellers i mean i i picture yeah. us you know as storytellers communicating something yeah joe i think there's there's definitely something to it i mean we're a very narrative narratively oriented ape um to put it to put it that way and I always tell my students, I said, no matter what you're writing, no matter what you're writing, I don't care if it is a dissertation in biochemistry, I said, it should sing. This thing should be a story. You know, you're, you're convincing a reader, you're trying to convey information to a reader. And if it doesn't like have the reader, you know, right there understanding each step and how the next idea is related to the next, related to the next, you're going to, you know, it's so easy to lose the reader with scientific writing. So um, I feel like whatever you're writing in a way that has a narrative capacity. I, and I always tell my students, and it's funny because we now know her. I always say, don't write for me, write for my mom in Florida. And, you know, what I mean by that is write for, you know, a lay person in your world. You should be able to explain this in that particular way what whatever it is that you're writing about you should you should be able to do that and i feel like students who really harness that you know really just are, are much stronger writers and presenters overall so and, and i i'd like to think that that's also what what i try to do with with my books is is translate translate this hardcore science so that not only can people understand it, but they can apply it right away. I've always wondered, you know, what what good is is a really great scientific discovery if you can't apply it in your in your everyday life? So that's that's part of what what I really try to do and I strive for. Like I say, like bringing the the wet lab to the bedside. That's 
That's what I try to do. I actually said that to, to one of the kids who are in drugstore theater. Uh, I said, you know, that's, that's what drugstore theater is about. We're bringing the wet lap to the bedside. And she said, why would you want to bring a wet dog to a bedside? You know, no, not, not that kind of lab. Um, what about influencers? What about the, this new sort of person who can be online and, you know, have millions and millions of viewers and they may be 18 years old, 19 years old. And I, I'm not, I'm not being ageist or something, but how, how do we build credibility? I mean, what is credibility? What is trust? How, how does somebody do that? Mark, I'm going to hand that over to you first. Yeah. Just a couple of thoughts about that. <clears throat> I mean, one, and this, I just actually read about this today. Um, but one, I sort of see two elements to, to the to the power that these influencers have. One is this aspirational thing. Like, you know, I think people realize now that those Instagram uh, posts, actually those photos have been elaborately staged and, 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 and uh, subjected to some significant post-production work before they're posted. Right. Um, and they say, well, you know, so they're not, so, you know, maybe, maybe some, some, I'm sure there's a, a sizable segment that doesn't really think about that. And they look at it and think, you know, either I'd like to be that, or I, you know, I'd like to be that. And there's no chance that I ever would be able to be like that. Um, and so that's sort of the double-edged side, I guess, on, on that, on that, in that way of thinking. But my other is, um, is the authenticity aspect of it. And, um, I think a lot of power as far as persuasive, persuasive power comes from authenticity and credibility. And it was funny, the thing that I was just referring to about seeing, you know, recently, like yesterday or today, apparently somebody posted, um, these unretouched kind of candid photos of one of the Kardashians. I think I'm not a Kardashian expert, but for some reason, I think it was Khloe Kardashian. I'm not even sure yeah. where she fits in the Kardashian hierarchy. But in any case, these things get posted. And like, surprise, she doesn't look the same as she does in the official pictures, right? And so the reflex of the Kardashian operation PR machine was to um, get these things pulled down right away and start sending out like cease and desist letters uh, for these. And um, so there's a way of thinking, okay, that was, you know, of course their images, their, um, their uh, ability and their right to control them. But there was this, also this segment online that was saying like, I love these pictures. They're authentic. This woman just had a baby, I guess. And they were saying, like, you know, she's she's out there. She's being herself. She looks great. She looks happy. And they preferred those pictures to, to the ones that were significantly retouched. And so I think with these influencers, some of them realize, and we'll kind of try to have it both ways, they'll, they'll do their regular studio shots. And then every once in a while, they'll be like, okay, here's me without makeup, like, you know, at three in the afternoon, like watching Netflix, you know, and people mm -hmm. they get tons of likes, you know, on both of those things, because I think authenticity and credibility is something that, that we really look for uh, generally in life. Cause we want to know, like, if this person's telling me something um, that's actual or, or in my interest or, or not, maybe. Hmm. Tom, you, you seem to be aware of this. Oh, sure. I, uh, 
I know about the Khloe Kardashian thing just from a quick t- Twitter scan. It was one of the trending topics, but I'm not so concerned about like the teenage influencers who are trying to get money as the influencers who are getting money from a handful of people trying to sway hearts and minds. There's this book called Dark Money by Jane Meyer about the uh, the Koch brothers and how they fund think tanks that flow to influencers all over the internet. Like the big ones would be like Jordan Peterson, Steven Crowder, uh, Ben Shapiro, and Dennis Prager. And they have huge online followings. I mean, that, that brings, you know, it is a remarkable time that we live in. And, and, and that's why, even though we're not talking about manipulation, there are some people who believe certain things They've been persuaded to, or it's easy for them to, and other people think they're wrong. Now we've got two groups of people. So unlike the experiment that Glenn was talking about, where you've got a whole bunch of people set up to sort of seduce or influence somebody to say something, what happens when you've got two groups of people? One group absolutely believes one thing is true. And another group says that is not true. Now, what do we do? Who wants to start that one off? <laughs> well, Go ahead, Mark. J- just real quick, because I want to hear what Glenn and you have to say too, and Tom is Joe, you use the word one group believes something, and the other, uh, and the other uh, says it's not true. And yeah. I think it's so important that we focus in on that um, verb believe mm, uh, or as a noun belief. Okay. Um, I, 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 because it's different. It's very, very different um, from, uh, from, from sort of the counterpoint that you pose. So I did this workshop. Um, this is actually back in 2018. It was, it, was a, it was a talk for the American Association for the Advancement of Science, AAAS, at their conference. And it was right after Kellyanne Conway who was then the counselor to President Trump, then President Trump, um, uh, had said on Meet the Press uh, that, you know, there were more people at Trump's inauguration than there have been Obama's, but we could see the video. Clearly, that wasn't true for the National Park Service. And so Kellyanne Conway says that the press secretary putting this out gave alternative facts to that. And this is where this term alternative facts came. And then I really geeked out on that and what what to do about it. But one thing that I learned at this this talk is I started out by asking people, because it was titled like alternative facts and like what to do when data aren't enough and how to combat alternative facts. Uh, One thing I I asked people is if Kellyanne Conway had said he gave an alternative belief to that instead Mm. of he gave an alternative fact to that, would you, and the, the people in the audience were mostly PhDs and professors and so forth, would you have, um, would that have bothered you as much? Because these guys were really exercised and irritated by it, you know, as was I. And people were like, no, not, not really. That's what mm. And so this distinction is so important because if you recognize this, these falsehoods, these lies, for, the, for what they are, which is beliefs, then the question is, well, what is a belief? And when I talk about this, I said, well, we're talking about something that is an emotional reaction that could be colored by your community, community values, sort of thinking about the example that Glenn gave, sometimes your faith, 
your personal experience, anecdote, people in your family have always done it this way. Um, these are things that are all tied to emotion. And so when you try to think about what to do about it, which was your question, Joe, it starts with an understanding that you're dealing with beliefs, not facts. You're dealing with emotions, not logic. And it has that takes you down a different path when you're trying to figure out what to do about it. That's a wonderful distinction. Thank you. Sir. Good thing you're a word nerd. I think it's great. Because <laughs> yes, absolutely. The words matter so much. Yeah. What about that, Glenn? Because we're sort of talking about the difference between the limbic system and the prefrontal cortex, between an emotion and belief and something that's rational and factual. Where do we go? Yeah, I think that Mark actually articulated that um, all that really in a super compelling and interesting way. Um, you know, one of, the, one of the problems with human psychology and human social interactions is we, we often don't realize, like we can step back um, and we can say that we know that there's um, there's emotional parts of the brain that are set you know very separated in a lot of ways from from cognitive um, prefrontal cortex kind of parts of the brain. We know that there's there's logic logic um, processes and there's emotion based processes, but individuals don't necessarily know that or feel that. Like in other words, if I like feel something totally wrong, I might see that thing as just as wrong as saying two plus two is five. In other words, like our, our minds aren't really good at saying, oh, that's my limbic system talking now. Um, you know, we don't really, it's very hard to understand that within our own minds. And, and getting back to that point, uh, Joe, that you were talking about regarding groups, you know, one of the things that I think is so interesting is that there's um, such a strong tendency, one of our strongest evolved social, social psychological tendencies is what we would call the in-group, out-group bias. And this is something that um, has been documented for decades now in lots of different ways. Simply, it's, it's them and us thinking. It's a tendency for people that I define as, as who are in my in-group, and that could be defined as someone who's in my religious group, as someone who's from my hometown, that could be someone who's on my baseball team. Um, it could be, I'm a Mets fan, you're a Mets fan. There's like so many ways we define people as being in their group versus out of their group. But there's such a strong tendency toward what we call in-group favoritism. Um, you know, and there's this idea that we have the right reality. Uh, and, and there's a very strong tendency also toward what we call out-group homogeneity, which is they're all wrong and they're all the same as each other. We're all right and we're all different from each other. Um, you know, but those people, so there's such, you know, these things are so entrenched and I kind of feel like with this new world that's emerging, um, I almost feel like at an, within the nation at a national level, it's, it's kind of getting worse. And I feel like social media has the capacity to create more fissures and more splits and more in-group out-group reasoning, um, than ever before. So all the terms, what's that? And the terms, like, I don't know if you come across people calling other people NPCs. That's a reference what? to, so that's a reference to video game terminology. NPC stands for non-player character. It's, Ooh. so it's like they are not, they don't have a stream of consciousness and they all behave the same way. Got it, got it. So this is anti-social media, right? Very. Which is really what it is, anti-social media, where we, we're dividing into groups. But you know, 
for me, and this is this is where the I am comes in, you know, the idea we're all doing the best we can and that we're one group, it's called humanity. The thing is, if everybody is doing in-groups and out-groups, right, you're in the in-group and you're in the out-group, and if everyone's doing it, doesn't that mean we're all in the same group? Because we're all doing the same thing. You know, I mean, that's the part that, that is just mind-blowing to me is we are so similar and yet we use that similarity to divide us it's just it's just mind-blowingly baffling but we've been doing this since we emerged uh as homo sapiens you know we we just do it it's, it's natural i mean think about think about from development you know stranger anxiety in a in an infant it doesn't matter what color you are it doesn't matter where you live you will develop stranger anxiety more or less around the same time no matter what because your brain has finally been able to compare two sets of information a familiar face and an unfamiliar face which is an in-group and an out-group very interesting way to put it right and around the age of anywhere between five, six, seven, eight months. Really, we're, we're very cool as human beings. It's really cool. And you know, if I, if I could just add on to that point, there's, um, there's a big push these days toward embracing diversity. And you, you got to see the benefits of embracing diversity, especially in a country like ours where, where people vary on so many different dimensions. But I almost wonder if that might have the capacity to sort of underscore differences like we're already from early early on just like you're saying joe we're already really prepared to sort of see people based on differences and at the end of the day we're all we're all people you know so this idea of like universe universality um we have so much in common and i feel like that underscoring or amplifying our common humanity really has the capacity to sort of maybe help reduce some of these problems I, I, I hope so, Glenn, because remember, that is something that develops this ability to discern the differences. That newborn, there is no difference. There is no difference between you and the next newborn. When you go into a newborn nursery and one baby cries, they all cry. They think they're crying. They're all stimulating each other. And it's a survival thing, right? I want to cry right now. Because if there's another predator coming, I'm going to cry. No, I'm going to cry. I'm going to cry. I'm going to. Everybody cries so that hopefully a whole bunch of adults come and save you. We're in a world right now where there's a lot of anger. And I think part of that anger, you know, anger is an emotion designed to change things. So rather than being afraid of the anger, I want to know why people are angry. And part of it has to do with some people believe, and there's that belief again, certain things and others don't. And they bring facts into it. They say we have the facts to support our belief. Um, And other people then will dispute those facts. It's quite a world that we're living in right now. Quite a world. Yeah, I, I would say to that, Joe, is if you're interested in trying to interact or, um, you know, engage 
um, with someone who or a group who has very different beliefs than you do, I think the first thing I say is, you know, decide before going in what you want to accomplish, what's realistic for you to accomplish. Is it that they'll just stop forwarding this, you know, this obvious, you know, obvious, obvious lies uh, or stop posting all this garbage on Facebook that's not true? Or is it something that you really want to change some other attitude or behavior that's a little bit deeper than that? And and in some cases, you know, I tell people, I, you know, coming from a political background, I sort of look at it like a campaign. You really have, it's almost like 20% of the people will be with you no matter what you do. Uh, and Donald Trump talked about that too, right? He said, yeah, I guess that new. So that's his base, right? That's your base. Um, they're going to be with you. And then on the other end of the spectrum, say the other 20% or so, you could walk on water, you could turn, turn water into wine, you, you could heal, heal the sick, whatever it is, they, they just will never be with you for, for one, for a range of different beliefs reasons. And then, you know, you're left with that 60% or so in the middle, um, the persuadables. And so I call, you know, people on the, you know, you get your lost causes, so to speak. And then on the other side, it's, you know, you don't want to, you want to really focus on those persuadables, not pay attention, too much attention to either side. Um, and then, um, you know, with respect to, you know, what, what you can do, you know, you and I had this conversation offline a little bit and you, you educated me about, you know, sort of mirror neurons, right? Mm-hmm. Talk about anger. And, and so yeah. the thing is when people, who are purveyors of this information that's that's not true, like something like, well, autism is caused by this vaccine and, and you know, climate change is a hoax, all those things are all lies. There there's always kernels of 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 things that they like to try to cite, data and things like that from the bell curve. Yeah, and, and exactly. And so the inclination on the other side is then to respond with the real facts, you know, actual data that's that's right. And What's ironic is that's the absolute wrong way to, to proceed for the most part. Um, the, the thing you want to do, and Joe, you've pointed this out too, is really try to get to the core of why they have the beliefs that they do. And it can really help you figure out how to craft your sort of persuasive argument um, because they'll be telling you um, really why they, they are holding on to this idea, say, that climate change is a hoax. And as you learn more about it, you'll figure it out. Uh, you'll, you'll be more informed to actually craft, you know, a response that is a much better fit than just to start, you know, citing UN numbers and things from the WHO and so forth. Right, right. It's true. Huh? If you don't know why someone believes something, how are you meant to try to change that belief? Um, and the only way that you're going to find out is, is by having a conversation. And the only way you can have that conversation is by not putting up a wall and, and continuing that barrier. Glenn, when we were offline, you, you were sort of alluding that there was some paper that, that may be relative to this. Yeah, it, it actually connects very much with, with what we're talking about, especially with what Mark was just saying. Um, you know, a, a lot of I think what we're what we're sort of getting at is that the world is kind of becoming more and more polarized um, politically, ideologically, um, and it's to, to be honest, it's kind of scary because it seems to be going in, in a direction that such that you know this is actually an increasing trend. 
there, there was an, a presentation from a, uh, at a conference from a guy named Matt Modell, who's a pretty renowned social psychologist. And I'll just describe his results that speak to this um, briefly, which is he showed these maybe six maps of the United States, and they each have to do with presidential election results starting at 2000, 2004, 2008. And the maps have three colors, and the colors represented counties. So each county was either white, meaning that the winner of the presidential election was within 20 points in that county, or red, meaning one candidate, the Republican candidate won by more than 20 points, or blue, meaning the Democratic candidate won by more than 20 points. And in 2000, there was more white than there was red or blue, which means that there were um, the most likely thing you would find in any random county would be a toss-up. In 2004, it became more red and more blue and less white. And every single year, especially in 2016, which was the final year for which we had data, there was very little white in the country. There was deep red and there was deep blue. And this kind of speaks to the world, how our political world and our social world is sort of evolving right now. You know, so if we're talking about sort of trying to convince other people or persuade other people X, Y, or, or Z, um, it's it's becoming, I think, for a variety of reasons, it's, it's becoming more and more difficult. And so I think that's the animal that we're dealing with. Hmm. Uh, How are we going to address that? Go ahead, Mark. Well, you know, give, you know what Glenn said, absolutely agree with that it's, it does seem like things are going in the wrong direction i think uh, for this one i sort of would put on kind of my, my attitude is more of the the or sort of the approach is more of the political policy kind of look at this and so you know one thing that's been happening uh is increasingly um you know these districts these these congressional districts say that also feed into the presidential um really are being um fashioned in a way to be homogeneous um and so you have a situation that, so every 10 years we've got the census that happens you know constitution says we have to do it um and then the state legislatures um go about reapportioning the number and the shape of districts, congressional districts, um, to comport with a population change. Um, so, you know, we can only have 435 members of the U.S. House of Representatives right now, but each state will get, you know, depending on census results, will see, could see their number of representatives go up or down, meaning the districts in those states will be need to be reshaped or redistricted every every 10 years and what's happening is that the policymakers who are in charge of those maps um, are applying a partisan lens to it and the justice department uh which which has the the, the responsibility for kind of reviewing the maps um, and there is always the the courts because people can can sue um to say basically you, you've just drawn a map that doesn't meet the standards that are laid out like you you know you can't have a map that looks essentially like you know like a like a godzilla monster right and the only reason you're doing that <laughs> that shape is because you want to get as many of one party as possible uh in, in in that district so it's as easy as possible for a member of that party to get elected um, but that enforcement's gotten very lax um and we were ending up with these crazy crazily drawn districts that 
well, I should say not crazy, they're very deliberately drawn in a way to reinforce homogeneity. And that has all sorts of really bad uh, consequences yeah. all the way down the line. And that that's a, a whole other show we may want to have you guys come back for. So we've got just a couple of minutes left, so I'm going to ask you guys this. The IM has two truths. The first truth, small changes can have big effects. Glenn, what kind of small change can you recommend to our listeners uh, when it comes to persuasion? And then I'm going to ask you that, Mark, as well. You know, as cliche as it might sound, open-mindedness is just absolutely critical. Trying to cultivate open-mindedness in those around you as well as in yourself. Um, someone might try to convince you of something that is con completely inconsistent with what you believe, and you might end up walking away not believe believing it still, but there's a certain amount of respect and civility in having just open-mindedness and communicating with others. Mark, what do you think? Small changes. Yeah, I love it. I would just say something that I... Um, try to get myself to do more of. And that is next time somebody says something, ask them, why do you think that is? And ask it in a genuine way. Yeah. You know, what, why do you think that is? And they'll say something and then you might follow up with, oh, that's interesting. What about, or why, you know, it could lead you down a, down a path of, of better understanding. So just try to ask more frequently, you know, why do you think that is? I love it. And you know, you control no one, you influence everyone. You've got 15 seconds, Mark. What kind of influence do you want to be on people? <laughs> I, I guess I, I want people to, to be more empathetic and kinder to each other. Glenn? I, I totally agree with that. And I think that if people can believe in themselves and in their capacity to make positive things, that would be a great thing. Great. Folks, thank you so much for an incredible discussion. Tom, we'll see you here next week. Ben? Thanks there in the studio and all our WATD folks. We'll see you next week, the Dr. Joe Show.